Welcome to another instalment of our podcast, L&D Behind the Curtain, where we talk to a different guest each week to hopefully shed some light on some of the fantastic work undertaken in the world of training. Work that by its very nature often goes unseen and unrecognised outside of an organisation. And Alex, today we've got a slightly different guest. Having the opportunity to actually run the adult community learning service for the county of Nottinghamshire seemed like such a great role. What we do makes a huge difference to lots of people who are some of the most vulnerable people across the county. So this week we've got Ian Bond, who is currently the learning director for Nottinghamshire's adult and community learning service. Uh, Initially starting out as a teacher before moving into further education, he then took up roles uh, which involved marketing and gaining an intimate knowledge of the funding landscape. And this was uh, nationally, you know, across the UK. He's done a lot of work with employers for mutual gain, both for gain in the community, but also gain for the L&D initiatives within companies. Yeah, he's a real champion of kind of social mobility and that, and a, and a real character, really. Just one of those that's really genuinely passionate about what they do and, and making a change. And I think that natural passion and drive has got him results where, wherever he's been. We probably did about what would have taken between five and ten years to have achieved. We did it in six to eight weeks and it was the fact that there was no alternative. So we had no option but to do it. So thank you for joining us, Ian. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. We always start these shows with a bit of a taste of kind of where you got started. And and interestingly, you started off as a teacher, I understand. Yeah, I was a secondary school teacher of English and drama, um, working in an East London comprehensive school. Um, I did that, really enjoyed it, um, but but realised after about a couple of years that you know, I was probably um, not enjoying the fact that I was still like the like the kids themselves. I was um, having to kind of react to the school bell and go to various parts of the of the of the campus to deliver the next lesson. And I figured I wanted a little bit more kind of autonomy and uh, and spread my wings. So then I moved to work for a youth training provider, which was uh, exciting. And I was doing word power and number power, which was basic maths and English delivery with them. And then I segued into working for careers. And then I got to work from 97 in further education. And I did that up until um, about um, 2012. And I then worked for uh, NIAS, who are now the Learning and Work Institute. So I did a bit of policy wonkery. And then I realised, as I say, it's a bit like angling and it's better to practice rather than um, you know, be at a distance removed. Although I still think it was very invaluable to have that opportunity to do that policy uh, wonkery stuff. It was useful. Um, but then I kind of got the current job that I'm in where I'm running the Adult Community Learning Service on behalf of Nottinghamshire County Council. And I've been doing that since 2015. And um, yeah, enjoying being actually a practitioner again, which is um, great. Cause it's one thing to kind of look up from the sidelines and pontificate, but it's much better to actually kind of get your hands dirty and be delivering. That's a quite a common move that that we see people moving from you know secondary uh, education into further education, and and it'd be interested to understand a bit more about why you made that move, and then what it was like you know making that move. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as I say, I, I kind of enjoyed working in a secondary school, and I was working with young people aged from kind of year seven right the way through to kind of year thirteen. So it was quite an interesting spectrum of different ages. 
but I've found that I enjoyed working with the year um, sort of 12 and 13 learners more than I did with the younger age group. So that was part of the reason for the change, I think. And another reason is that further education, frankly, is more dynamic, really, than secondary schools. The schools, kind of in terms of their curriculum and what they do, is, you know, still fairly you know it doesn't change as much in fact it's not as dynamic um i mean there are alterations as they moved from kind of o levels and cses to gcses which kind of happened just before i started my teaching career but there haven't been there've been other changes i know with multi academy trust I'm, I'm being a bit unkind but to be honest further education has more changes in a year than schools will have in a decade often in in reality so that that i found attractive because I'm somebody that enjoys the challenge of those kinds of changes and especially as well because I kind of got into external funding as well um, uh, which was what, what I kind of had as a focus in my career in further education and I really enjoyed that because it, I just liked the fact that not only could I write and win project funding but then I'd often have to deliver the projects so um, because there wasn't anyone else to do to do it frankly so um, that that meant that I was doing really interesting, varied things um, all over the place. And I found that fascinating and interesting and more challenging, I think, than I found, you know, the secondary school teaching. Although, to be fair, that was probably the hardest job I've ever done. Every job I've done since has seemed easier. <laughs> so I have enormous respect for all um, primary and secondary school teachers because having done it for the two years that I did it, um, yeah, I think in terms of hardness and difficulty and, you know, it is one of the hardest jobs there is. So um huge amount of respect for, for for teachers school teachers yeah i think i think we all do i think sometimes people look on and think oh great holidays and and you know you've 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 got a shorter day sometimes but actually the amount of stuff you have to do outside and the, the goalposts moving with data all the time and the demands on you i think i think it's, it's a very tough career and you stayed within the college sort of system for a while right before we moved to the um the learning and work institute and, and focused a bit more on marketing yes tell us why you sort of made moves within that then well i started working for barry and did that for three years and was very successful winning quite a lot of external funding and i had to learn european funding because i'd never done european funding and that was quite interesting so i was quite successful at doing that and then I think as a result of that, there, an opportunity came up at the Oldham College, which was still a kind of middle manager responsible level. So, But it was a more senior middle manager because I then had responsibility for the marketing and all the external relations for the Oldham College. And I did that really successfully. And there were all kinds of interesting innovations there. And I was responsible for linking with the franchise provision that was done as well. And uh, David Fell had, had been the vice principal at um, Doncaster College, came across and was appointed the head. And cutting a long story short, he kind of got headhunted to go and work for Park Lane College Leeds um, as the new kind of um, um, deputy principal there. And he headhunted me to go across and that's when I moved into kind of senior management and became a director. So then I was doing, I can't remember the job title now, but it was an incredibly long one. I remember I had the kind of business cards was ridiculously long because it was the, some like director of widening participation and engagement or something like that. But, it, <laughs> but again, it covered all of the sort of external relations. So I had apprenticeships, I had employer engagement, I had marketing, and I had all of the external funding side. And again, I was really quite successful I think in, in getting lots and lots of money and 
did a number of different projects. One of them was like a 15 million pound incubator project that involved other colleges across um, West Yorkshire as well, and actually South Yorkshire. Um, and it was started in Park Lane College and then we kind of exported the idea. Um, and it was a nice mix of ERDF for the capital funding and then ESF funding to support the actual kind of delivery of the training. And I created a school for entrepreneurship and had fellows of the School of Entrepreneurship who were 10 local um, successful entrepreneurs from, from Leeds, sort of city region. And they pro bono gave their time and would select who would be allowed to come in as new business startups into the unit because to get a place in the unit in the incubator was hugely advantageous because it was peppercorn rent. You got access to free training in terms of marketing and um, bookkeeping and other kind of key business survival skills. Plus, you also had access to the to the 10 on the um, fellows of the School for Entrepreneurship who would provide basically pro bono business advice as well and support which was great and what that was really good about was because you know FE colleges are always trying to get employers to do engagement with them and kind of come on board as part of the kind of employer board that would then inform the curriculum design and everything but actually lots of employers frankly don't understand that and don't particularly want to give their time because it doesn't seem something that's of direct relevance to them and their businesses sounds a bit like the nightmare with all the standards within apprenticeships. It was. And as a result, it actually meant that we, yes, it is a very similar model. We managed to get them to come in on board because they, they were passionate as successful entrepreneurs themselves with helping um, other new business startups because that's something they're passionate about. So through that, though, we got them to engage. And one of them, for example, was a guy called Steve uh, Beaver, who was a successful, he, he was only a chain of gentlemen's hairdressers. Plus, he was actually their manufacturing product as well and then selling it through the venues. So he's both a manufacturer and a retailer. Very successful, very, very you know, all operating across the whole of the kind of Yorkshire Humberside and up into the northeast as well. So really successful entrepreneur. He then provided his support not only for the for the incubator, which we called the unit, but also for our hair and beauty. So he went to that was based at our Horsforth campus. He gave lots and lots of his time and gave them all kinds of really invaluable tips and guidance. And as a result, at the next inspection, that provision got a one. And, um, you know, he was able to kind of make it really a successful department. And it had been kind of a requires improvement type area that was a bit of a problem child. And it went, it leapt from problem child to being kind of centre of excellence for the college. And it's cause, because it's true, if you've got that close involvement of an employer that knows what they're talking about and knows the sector. And it also meant that then the graduands from it were getting better um, apprenticeship placements sounds very like the NatWest accelerator you know I think Barclays have got a, a kind of incubator as well and they provide that office space you know training and, and I think it's it's been harder since the pandemic to drive that on um, but it does sound very similar to that um, I just wanted to ask you because you've also had such a long career in funding what attributes and, and skills do you think are most important within the funding arena when you're tasked with you know, winning those bids and diversifying them as well. From an external funding point of view and an external funders point of view, quite a lot of what we already were doing within the college and currently are doing, say, within our adult community education centre, if they understood what we were doing and you articulate it to them, they'd be amazed and then they'd want to really encourage it because, in fact, it's amazingly good stuff. And we often 
A, have a lack of kind of ambition that we can generate the funding. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that we then have a tendency not to kind of blow our own trumpet as a sector enough in terms of the bidding. The shift that's happened since I started in the late 90s is that back then, when it came to European funding, you could almost write a project idea and you could submit it in a kind of a speculative way. And as long as it was within broad parameters of the funding, then they would judge it and you would maybe win the funding. So you could be quite kind of imaginative in your inception of the projects. What's happened is over the course of funding, I think since then, is it's become much, much more prescriptive and prescribed. And it's more of a kind of responding to tender rather than being able to come up with a project idea yourself and then seek the funding for that project idea. However, although that's true and that is the case, if you are sensible and you understand enough about what the available pots of funding actually are, it is possible to find tender opportunities that will align with what you want to do and your ambitions as an organisation. And it is still possible to then use that funding creatively to help you to get where you need to be. And I've always viewed the kind of external funding from Europe or other sources as being kind of R&D side of the college or the or the learning, the further education institution, because it allows you to do the things that the core funding doesn't let you do. So it allows you to develop and explore new curriculum, new approaches to delivery, new technologies for delivery, and then that can enhance the core delivery over time because you move from project to making it kind of business as usual. And that's that's when you can then embed those benefits that you but you hothouse them and pilot them using external funding. You then moved into a role in marketing, though, right? So you were you were at the um, uh, Learning and Work Institute. Yeah. NIA's, um, as was, and now is the Learning and Work Institute. So it's, it's been going for a long time. I think it was formed just after the First World War. So it kind of is a contemporary of the, like the WEA, like the Workers' Education Association. And it was formed just like that was after the First World War as a way of supporting basically, you know, returning veterans who often had, um, you know, fairly life-changing, you know, injuries as a result of the war. And they needed to retrain so that they could then go into new careers. And that's what NIAS was about, was kind of a body that helped to inform um, adult learning and how it could be made available to the, those, those returning veterans. And it was, along with the WEA, they were formed at that time. And kind of, I think it was, about, it was literally about 1918, 19 that they were formed. So... Um, I, I joined in 2012 and they were, as a, it was a kind of policy shop. And I had, as I say, previously been responsible at both um, the Oldham College and at Park Lane College Leeds, and then it became Leeds City College for, as, along with a lot of other external facing, I was responsible for the marketing. So I wasn't a, I'm not a marketeer myself, but I have managed the marketing departments with a marketing manager that's kind of reported to me um, since I worked at Oldham and then Park Lane and then Lee City College. So when I got the job at NIACE, they were interested in that 
you know experience of doing that so they kind of asked me to head up the um, adult learners week so I was kind of head of marketing for them uh, I don't know if you've come across adult learners week but it's an annual um, celebration of adult learning which NIACE and or now the Learning and Work Institute have been you know championing for a long time there was about a budget of somewhere in the region about two and a half million pounds and it's a um an award ceremony basically and a celebration of adult learning um, colleges adult community education services independent training providers all, all of the further education sector are, are able to apply um, and there's a kind of a glittering event in the kind of summer um, towards the end of the academic year in London to celebrate adult learners week and all the winners and um, yeah so I was responsible for the three years I was there at NICE, I was kind of doing that and culminating in in these these big big national events that was that were quite good. And I managed to secure some external funding from people like the NOCN and others to kind of bring add add to the pot that we were getting from uh, European funding sources. Um, and yes, it was. I mean, it's, I I was working on on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, because it wasn't something that I. Um, came up with at all the idea you know, the idea was already there I just needed to ensure that while I was responsible for it I left it when I when I got the job I've currently got at least in a position that it was as strong as I picked it up if that makes sense which I think I managed to do and it's still going strong and Adult Learners Week is still a success and the Learning Work Institute you know still continue to deliver it so yes marketing has always been and I think it needs to be one of the key I mean, I'm not, I haven't got any credentials or professional qualifications in marketing, but having an understanding of the kind of, you know, whatever it is, is it five or eight Ps? I mean, different people say it's different, but having some basic understanding. But actually, to be honest, I've found like a lot of things, in fact, in the first education world, it's like applied common sense. And, um, you know, if you actually understand that, then like, 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 I'm, like you know, there are things, you can, simple things one can do to ensure that you can actually get your, um, brand name and understand what you're doing across and people it, it, sometimes I think they underplay how important and vital that is to the success of all further education because without that and without the numbers and without getting more learners to take part in the learning you can't be successful if you haven't if you don't recruit them then it doesn't matter how wonderful your provision is if you don't have anybody actually doing it it won't it won't be successful i mean it's you know in some ways it's not the most comfortable place to be because it's also there's a huge amount of responsibility but it does you know i do know that what 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 we do makes a huge difference to lots of people who are some of the most vulnerable people across the county and we offer fantastic services that make a real difference to their lives because we provide them with access to learning that means that they can you know really materially improve their situation they can go and get either if they're in work they can get better paid work and if they're not in work they can get the skills to mean that they can meaningfully move in and become economically active and you know that is exciting to me yeah and you can tell you're at that point as well i think you mentioned in the pre-record that you'd had a hundred percent increase in funding of you know spent on young people and a 50 percent increase on funding spent on, on adult learning as well so i guess when you marry up that passion with you know with the, with the service then it then it, it works right it does yeah and I, I you know what i inherited was effectively a kind of if i'm honest a bit of a sleepy service and it was it was very good it was a, it, it got good ofsted inspection results 
but the model of delivery was actually um, 100% subcontracted. So the money was coming from the funder, from the Education Skills Funding Agency to Nottinghamshire County Council. And then Nottinghamshire County Council was not directly delivering any of the adult learning. It then passed that funding on to local colleges and other providers, and then kind of took an overview in terms of the quality and ensured that that was okay. And it worked very well. What I did, was um you know from starting was to sort of change that and start direct delivery because i felt that it was important that we as the county council's adult community learning provider actually yes we'd still continue to work with subcontractors and we still do but the kind of split now is more like 75 percent of our adult provision is d delivered directly by ourselves and 25 percent is delivered by our subcontractor partners and i think that feels about right um, because it gives us the flexibility and we work with subcontractors that specialise in things that we frankly don't have the skill set to deliver ourselves. So we work with an organisation like REACH that's very good at working with um, learning disabled young adults and we work with NGSHE that provides training and support for women who are actually victims of kind of domestic abuse. So different types of specialist organisations, but the bulk of the kind of core adult learning, I felt it was better for us to directly manage because that way you can have real control over the quality of what's being delivered as well, which um, I think has been a massive advantage. And we could then also drive, as you say, Alex, the actual volume of it and actually in increase our reach. So as I said, we've, we've, we're doing a lot more now, whereas in that kind of quite comfortable position that I inherited. The service was doing well, it was doing good work, but it was doing the same amount of good work kind of year on year. And it had stuck with just delivering the community. So the non-accredited side, which was frozen at being a value for the adults of about 2.3 million and hadn't looked at doing accredited learning. And I thought that was a mistake because we should be offering the progression opportunity for those adults that start with us doing a non-accredited course who then want to, not all of them do, but if they do want to progress to then doing an accredited course and getting an actual qualification, I felt it made sense for us to be able to offer that pathway for them. And so now we do that and it's and it has definitely grown, grown the provision quite substantially. Excellent. And just before, Nathan, you come on to the digital transformation piece, what, what, what were the major challenges around that shift away from subcontracting and into direct provision? Well, first of all, I had to kind of tell the subcontractors that they weren't going to get the volume of funding. So that did require um, quite a bit of work because I started, kind of get the chronology, I started in May of 2015. So I couldn't do anything for the 15-16 academic year because that had already been set up and was kind of, I inherited that. And in a way that was a real advantage though, because what it allowed me to do was to realize I couldn't do anything to affect the change in the 15, 16 academic year, but I could use that time to prepare for what I wanted to do for the 16, 17 academic year. So it was all about communication as it always is. And I went and held meetings as soon as possible at the start of the, so a year before the changes were gonna come in, I was actually talking with the colleagues about what the direction was travel. And a bit like I think we've seen with, you know, the, the new chancellor this morning, it's helpful, even if the message is not, as in this case, it wasn't for them, a particularly positive message. It's much better to tell them that face to face, 
have the courage to take the questions and say this is why we're doing it because strategically it's in the interests of the learners in Nottinghamshire that we take over control of the delivery and to be fair most of the people who were the recipients of the funding from Nottinghamshire County Council worked either for colleges or independent training providers or third sector organisations and they knew themselves that if they had that funding allocation they wouldn't have just given it away. They would have wanted to deliver at least probably the majority of it. So they could understand as fellow kind of further education practitioners where I was coming from, I think. They, they didn't necessarily, they didn't like it, but I think ultimately they kind of agreed with it because it was something which if the shoe had been on the other foot, they wouldn't have wanted to give 100% of their funding and they didn't you know if they had funding themselves they they would use it to deliver the learning that they could and they could understand the arguments around quality and and about strategic strategic alignment because it's harder to strategically align what we deliver to the strategic drivers of Nottinghamshire County Council who ultimately it's their contract if you're trying to do it using subcontractors whereas when we do that as Inspire on behalf of Nottinghamshire County Council Yes, Inspire is an arm's length organisation, but we are in lockstep really with, um, not like quasi quartet, but we are in lockstep with the um, with, with <laughs> Nottingham County Council. So we can actually deliver their strategic objectives. And that's something which I think um, was great. The other thing was, of course, it was a massive um, internal HR challenge because I had to recruit a whole new cadre of of delivery tutors and a whole new management structure so it was a complete kind of well invention really from scratch of the service in, in effect um, on the side of adults so uh, but luckily because this 16 to 18 sort of study program had been directly delivered I was able to borrow from the expertise of some of the managers and delivery staff from that side so I was able to kind of I cross fertilized and so again that was very helpful because I think the two services have been completely in silos so like 19 plus didn't talk or think about 16 to 18 and vice versa and since that transition they now do talk to each other and again that's allowing the progression pathways for our young people when they get to 19 to then progress to provision that's offered by our adult service which frankly there was none of that happening when it was all subcontracted out that that never happened there was no link at all so i think there's been huge amounts of kind of benefits as a result yeah and that's great for funding right so you you recruit the learner once and then and then you you know you're using the the different funding bands yeah. all the way through if there's one thing i could say you know as kind of a tip for people that is probably in further education as well is the, is the key thing and i and i and i especially again use the external funding that we get to do that because without being inappropriate or or bending the rules because what you need to ensure is that you never double fund but you can perfectly legitimately utilize the same learner and count them against different parts of the funding as you do different things on their learner journey. And what it allows you to do is to support them both for longer in terms of duration of time, but also at different stages along their journey. So we have kind of pre-support um, package funding that comes from 
currently ESIF funding through something called um, Way to Work that can help people that are quite a long way from the labour market to improve and you know, have interview techniques and support and learning to move them forward. That's from European. Then we can put them onto a non-accredited core-funded AEB programme. Then we can progress them to, if they want to, an accredited AEB programme. Then when it comes to they think they want to leave that and move into employment, I've got Back to Work, which is an ESIF project that can assist with actually placing them into employment, and, and we do that. And then when they're in employment, I've got two projects, NTU, STEM and I programme that are ESIF projects that can support them to actually gain skills while they're in the workplace. Not to mention the fact that we've now got multiply, which means if they haven't current, currently got a level two in maths, we can actually give them, um, give them that, work them towards that as well. So it, it's that ability. And that's why I like to try and have as much of the external funding as I possibly can, because what it allows you to do is when you either talk to an individual learner or to an employer and they say, I've got this particular business need that I need to address, you can actually have the ability to, to do it. And there are not many business needs that a local entrepreneur or local business has or of an individual that our service now can't meet. And while we can't meet it, because we can't do with them all, like for example, say advanced engineering and things like that isn't where we're at. We know the relevant providers like you know, Vision West Knotts College or Rotherham and North Knotts College or Nottingham College and others who we can then, and we've got really close relationships with those institutions. So we can make a really, not just a, not just say to the learner, go and phone them. We will make the ref an active, you know, supported referral on their behalf and get them the appointment and sort them out. And a lot of the provision you're you're uh, offering, it's it's a tough kind of audience, right? Even even getting these people engaged in any way. I mean, we started life as a as a production video production company within training, working with Neats, and you know those disengaged for whatever reason with with school or work or both or whatever. And to this day, that's probably the most rewarding stuff that we've done. Tell us a little bit about that side of it, how, it, you know, what what you do do and, and the, the difference you make. Sure. Well, I mean, with young people, I mean, I, I'm really proud of this. You know, our, our young people's provision was set up by Nottinghamshire County Council. It was part of the youth service uh, originally about maybe 20 years ago because of that acronym of NEAT. There were a lot of NEAT young people across Nottinghamshire at the time. And, you know, as you know, post-16 education and training is in fact selective. So, you know, obviously when institutions like colleges and private providers are going to be subject to Ofsted, which they are, then they don't, they don't, they want to take the low-hanging fruit. They want to take the young people on who have probably had quite a successful, you know, school career, got a reasonable range of GCSEs, etc. because then, you know, you know that you're more likely to be able to progress them through and that they're more likely to successfully achieve their um, objectives in terms of qualifications, et cetera. We were set up as a service to take the young people who none of the other providers would normally take. So these are young people who may not have taken any GCSEs because they probably weren't attending school particularly um, consistently, certainly in year 10 and 11. Um, who may have all kinds of complex needs, who have all kinds of behavioural issues. They have the SEMH, which is that, um, you know, another acronym that effectively, you know, is um, around emotional and mental health um, issues and so on. 
and they are the young people that we work with still and I'm, proud, I'm very proud that we take our young people but the thing is it wouldn't be any good if all we did was took them and then kind of wrap them in cotton wool so to speak and didn't get them to progress and what we don't do that what we do is we actually are it's an application of I suppose tough love you know we do give them lots of chances so that whereas I think in the past if they kind of effed and jeffed or had a storm out or an emotional outburst then often the kind of guillotine would fall on that young person and the provider would say well you know never darken our door so to speak we don't take that approach and it's a difficult one because we don't let them you know take take the mickey either so in terms of we have to we are tough on them but we let them make serious mistakes multiple times and we don't give up on them and they're testing really to see whether we care enough to kind of keep with them and when we show that we are prepared to stay with them they then respond and what i'm enormously proud of is that i'll give you just some stats Last summer's GCSE, we have to do GCSE resets because you probably know any young people that got what would have been a grade D in old money, but it's now a grade three in GCSE. So they missed getting the, you know, the grade four, which is the pass mark. They have to resit, even if they don't want to, their maths and English. So we get the young people who sat their GCSE resets this summer, who the previous summer didn't get grade four or above now if you remember because of the pandemic last summer 2021 it was a tutor assessed grade so even with tutor assessed grades they didn't pass i mean and to be honest tutor assessed grades were inflated compared to sitting an external exam and our pass marks for maths were 65 percent on the resit and for English, we're 44%. And the national pass mark for resets benchmark for maths was 20.1%. Wow. And for English was 28.2%. So it's like 16% above for English, but something like 44.9% above for maths. Now, I think that's actually outstanding. And we also have an overall achievement rate because our young people are taking level entry level, level one, level two qualifications in IT, hospitality and catering, construction, etc. And our overall pass rate was um, at 82%, which is pretty, pretty high. And um, so our achievement rates are really rigorous. And when you consider the distance travel because of the young people we start working with, that's enormous. And the other thing is we have a, a progression rate that's 88%. So 88% of our young people leave us and go into apprenticeships, traineeships, employment, Brilliant. further education. So we're not taking those difficult young people and just kind of be ticking a box and wrapping them in cotton wool and almost colluding with them that because they have had some difficult circumstances, that means that there shouldn't be really high expectations of them and they shouldn't have high expectations of themselves. But we don't we don't collude in that with them and they don't want us to. And they actually love the fact that but they finish. They they often say, and testimony that makes even my flinty heart melt a bit, that um, you know, it's made a huge difference to them because 
they hadn't realized what they were capable of and they hadn't realized that they were going to be able to achieve things and the fact that they've learned really to learn that's what we do we teach them to learn um, and then they apply that and that application and hard work will result in good outcomes is a fantastic life lesson and then they go on and apply that and they become effectively young people who will become effective members of our society as opposed to the trajectory that they were on as neats which i mean i wouldn't like to generalize but it was a much less positive trajectory for those young yeah. people and they'd often been told all their school career and afterwards that they were kind of not going to amount to anything and mm. you know all everything that the system and sometimes their own home lives had told them was that they were kind of not very highly valued or very worthwhile young people and to me, that's that's I, I can't be prouder of it, and it's I can't take any credit. I mean, it's 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 the team, the the tutors, the the managers, the the, the extra mile they go to is amazing, but it really pays massive dividends, and it's the most rewarding part of my job. Tingles, and again, having worked with that, those sorts of youngsters, I, I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about you know we were working with the London Stadium and. And talking to them about getting involved with is it Newham the council yeah, down Newham, there? Yeah, Newham, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and starting at, actually Alex up near you up in Sunderland mm. when we were working with a training provider up there. Um, you know that that's that's the youngsters we were working with, and we we although we were creating video courses and hopefully really good fun. So what we were doing was through the vernacular of making videos so one week they'd make an ad the next minute they'd make an interview with a corporate in a corporate environment and it wasn't really to teach you how to be great editors or camera operators it was about making phone calls and, and showing up when you said you were going to show up getting a team to help you out maybe get your mum to make the sandwiches whatever it may be um and it was fantastic seeing when we ran the live stuff, because we early on, we, we sort of did our kind of proof of concept and we we filmed some of these kind of initial groups. It was amazing. It, absolutely amazing. The, the difference you saw in these youngsters once they'd accomplished something and made something. And it, it was it was special. But um, you mentioned the kind I mean, a huge challenge in itself, you know, the, the kind of audience you're working with um and sounds like you're rising to that one of the things you mentioned with alex and i though was um during something called the pandemic uh, that we're, we're all aware of um you had another big challenge which is probably very relevant to, to a lot of people that perhaps listen to this and, and what they're about to go through so t talk about this digital transformation you underwent again i don't think it's something that i can say is in, in any way exclusive to um to our service i think a lot of further education and schools and other education services were faced with the same problems but what i would say is i think we definitely were you know we 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 showed a, a good response i think we you know we definitely responded very well to, to that uh, as i say i'm not claiming uniquely well but but it was we were among some of the better respond, responders to it. Because effectively our model had been, you know, almost, um, well, pretty much kind of probably 95% face-to-face delivery for both our adult delivery and our young people provision was how we delivered our courses. It's a fairly traditional, you know, classroom-based um, provision. Yes, we used IT in terms of, you know, more, you know um, interactive whiteboards and integrating video and so on there was there was there was use of technology but pretty much it was in face-to-face -face, um 
traditional classroom environments. Suddenly with the lockdown in March of 2020, I think it was 23rd of March, I think it was, we, we suddenly had to stop and we were, we were effectively shut. Now, we didn't actually close completely because as you're probably aware, um, high needs learners and also the you know, young people who were the children of key workers could continue to access face-to-face. -face. So I just want to mention that because I think, again, lots of colleges and other providers will have done this as well. So there was a small cadre of colleagues that were doing face-to-face -face delivery all the way through the whole of the lockdowns. So for them, there wasn't a lockdown. And that's also been true of schools and that's also been true of colleges and other, you know, Cross FE and, well, the education sector, that was the case. And um, so that's just worth noting. And... Um, but basically, we suddenly had to have, you know, flip it to have 100% of it or well, 95% being online and 5% face to face instead of the other way around. Thankfully, a bit like I mentioned when we had to do the transition from um, using um, subcontractors and then going to direct delivery. But the fact that the 16 to 18 had been directly delivered helped. That 5%, we did actually have a distance learning offer and a sort of blended learning and a bit of a digital learning offer. So it wasn't as if we didn't do it at all. It was small and the numbers were small, but we did have a small cadre of tutors and we did understand a little bit about what that was. And we did have a virtual learning environment that we could use as a platform. So we weren't starting completely from scratch and that really helped. But effectively what we had was... I think we did it in about six weeks because we started the delivery of the whole thing to young people and adults online from just after the kind of, you know, what in old money would be the wit half term. So we took the time from March to wit half term to get it in place and um, a bit longer than maybe a bit longer than six weeks. But but we, 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 we turned that around and we were able from after that wit half term, we were back with a full offer, the full curriculum, both for young people and adults um, online. And we've had to use the intervening period to train all of our tutors on how to use the technology, the kind of technology we're using for this um, interview um, to actually teach and deliver courses using um, their laptops and their cameras and um, Teams and Zoom. And it was a huge uh, transition. I think we probably in those six to eight weeks changed our provision in terms of digitalizing it. We probably did about what would have taken between five and 10 years to have achieved. Wow. We did it in six to eight weeks. I, I seriously don't think without the pandemic, and it, it's it's always the na you know, that nature of kind of whatever the, the necessity is the mother of invention so to speak and it was the fact that there was no alternative and we either were not going to be able to deliver our services which wasn't wasn't for me that wasn't a um, an acceptable alternative so we had no option but to um to do, to do it and the the great thing about that was because obviously everybody knew what the situation was with the lockdowns was that the tutors the managers from the top to bottom understood of the organization understood the imperative and that they they all got on board that we didn't spend a long time having to kind of in normally in massive change management it's all about having to win mm. the hearts and minds and you have to spend a lot of effort on that and there's always a percentage you're never going to take with you etc cetera, etc cetera. but there was to be honest with this there was none of that we didn't have the luxury of that we had to just say this is how it's going to have to be we're going to have to train you in how to do this you're all going to have to come on board are you with us and 
they all were and um, they did it amazingly and you know i'm again enormously proud of them because i think they fantastically stepped up to the plate because these were tutors who were used to delivering their courses in a classroom face to face with their learners and they suddenly were having to be used to doing it with you know teams and zoom groups um online in real time i mean we didn't do you know we didn't send out pre-packaged materials and ask people to work their way through almost 100 percent of what we did online was actually real-time group delivery so it was a kind of a replication of what we would do in the classroom only we were doing it via zoom and team it was a, it was a big frustration for me i mean i've got two kids that were 14 and 16 during during that period and my 14 year old really it was you know i know that all the teachers are struggling and again you mentioned earlier some of them are actually still teaching in school and and stuff that you kind of weren't really aware of but a lot of them would just set you know task-based stuff onto a platform you would go on anytime you wanted call it down do the work um why, why do you think they didn't do what you did and, and do these kind of live sessions and run it like you would a, a normal classroom environment in a lot of ways? Yeah, it was. That's, that's basically what we did. I think we stuck with the model that we, we're more familiar with and kind of yeah. just used the technology to enable what we kind of already do. I don't, I don't know, to be honest, Nathan. I haven't got an answer. I think... I think in, in some instances, I think, to be honest, some schools did as well. That's, that there, if if yeah. you looked across it, I don't think there was a universal approach mm. to how, and again, the government didn't give any guidance. So it was kind of each institution, each provider, college, independent training provider, whoever, adult community learning service like ourselves or school, all of them, primary, secondary, whatever, had to find their own way. So to a certain extent, I think it's down to the kind of yeah. mindset almost of of. The, the head teacher ultimately and it's it's true isn't it what what differentiates two schools you have i mean in my town in long eaton we've got two secondary schools they're almost identical you can't use kind of socio-economic things and determinants to say what the difference is because both the kind of socio-economic kind of popular the demographics and so on of both schools are about as identical as it's possible to be because everyone's from the same town and there isn't a, in in long eaton there is not great kind of this it's not a particularly leafy suburb and everyone's pretty much in pretty much the same kind of boat so and yet the two schools vary massively and it does it's down to the qualities and leadership of the of the head and i don't know what it is about education in particular but it seems to be a sector where more even than in others where the qualities are both good and bad of the leader have a huge impact on the quality of the of the service and it seems to always be the case in education even in universities you know the vice chancellor will have a huge impact on whether that university is a welcoming successful university or not and and, and i don't know what it is but it's something about education it seems to matter massively well, you know, when we first spoke, you didn't strike me as someone from that kind of world yourself because you seem to be very progressive, front foot forward, energetic. I mean, I may be doing a disservice to others, you know, working within, say, FE and, and, and sort of county councils and stuff, but you often do come across that kind of tougher environment to change things. You mentioned it earlier. I mean, yeah. has, that, has that had a lot of impact, do you think, in the way in the results that you've achieved and successes you've had over your career? I think it has, yeah. I mean, as, as, as you know, going back to when you were talked about why 
external funding what my success and what what my tip would be to being successful and I said kind of you need to be optimistic and not underestimate what you can achieve and I do think one of the there are a lot of self-limiting beliefs that I mean I see it in we talked about it in our young learners there are self-limiting beliefs there but there are lots of self-limiting beliefs among you know bureaucrats effectively and others who operate within education and I've never, for whatever reason, and I can't easily say why, but I've never had those same self-limiting beliefs. And I've always thought, when I looked at kind of what was possible, I've always looked at the resources and the staffing and the kind of, you know, the technology and, and the available spaces and all of the all of the assets that we've got, both staff assets and, and physical and technological resources, and I've always thought that there was a huge amount that we could do with those resources because they're actually very, um, I mean, most of the tutors that we have and most of the managers are very highly intelligent, very skilled, very um, experienced practitioners who know what they're doing. So that's a big tick. And then you've got the technology, which is also pretty good. I mean, actually, the Zoom and the Teams and the technology we used was very reliable. It worked. It actually didn't pack up we didn't have enormous difficulties in doing it yeah there was some teething troubles but nothing very difficult and I, I you know so again the technology actually isn't an impediment I mean there's often people talk about that but it's not a huge impediment I don't think it's a huge in fact it's a huge enabler and then you've also got the fact that we've got in this country quite a lot of very good physical resources as well I mean you know as our model is a diffused model we deliver mainly through the 60 libraries across Nottinghamshire, which are also run by Inspire on behalf of Nottinghamshire County Council, which means that no resident in Nottingham is, Nottinghamshire sorry, is further than about two miles from their local library. And that's a massive advantage because it means we have a way of offering our yeah. learning offer that's really close physically to where they need yeah. to be. Um, but now combining what we've learned from the um, pandemic means that we really genuinely now as a service post-pandemic have become a blended learning delivery um, service. So what we're able to do is for those, because there were lots of learners in the feedback, because we did a lot, we always do a lot of surveys to find out what they, the learners think of what we're doing. There were lots of learners that were able to actually under, it's funny, under lockdown, they were able to access our learning that hadn't previously been able to because for them physically, even though our, we have got lots of centres, physically getting into a library for them wasn't, you know, maybe they had a disability, they had other demands on their time, whatever it was, they couldn't access the learning we delivered if we just exclusively delivered it through traditional classrooms. So the transition to doing it through um, Teams and Zoom, which we've then retained now so that we probably are doing probably about 50% face-to-face and 50% um, online delivery. So it's a really blended approach has meant that we are actually reaching now young people and adults um, that we wouldn't otherwise have done had we not taken that journey in terms. So the pandemic, although very bad in lots of respects, don't get me wrong, for us in terms of a service development, I think it was massive, massive, it did actually do us a power of good. Do you think, you know, you mentioned this earlier really, but do you think that the public sector needed this in a way, you know, not just yourselves, but a lot of institutions and, and councils and whatever? I mean, I can definitely say from a video production company, you're selling video to 
uh, to organisations was was always a bit more of a difficult sell. You know, after the pandemic, suddenly the virtues of video no longer need selling. It's really about how do we go about it? How much is it going to cost? And you, you get into those conversations early. Do you think that the sector needed it? Yeah, I do. I think it did. I think that... You know, obviously the technology, I mean, I remember, you know, I mentioned earlier in the discussion about the unit that we did, the incubator, which was in the kind of mid-noughties in Leeds, that had a dedicated boardroom that the businesses could kind of book into. And we invested a lot of money in the video, kind of what was then video conferencing technology. But the thing was that the recipient at the other end wouldn't have that. So it wasn't a particularly effective communication mechanism. Whereas now we've moved to kind of having Teams and Zoom as the two kind of industry standards for how it works, then it means that both ends of the conversation have the technology to take part in the conversation. And it's a revolution. And that's been around, I don't know how long that's been possible, but it's probably been around certainly for kind of at least five, six, seven, maybe longer years before the pandemic. But it took the pandemic to actually demonstrate that the technology works and to force yeah. education institutions, frankly, to, to come out of their comfort zone and actually experiment. And as I say, I'm, I don't think I'm underestimating. I, I would have got to that point. We would have ended up with a 50-50 type blended approach because it was obviously the right direction of travel. But I reckon it would have taken between five and 10 years to get there. And I literally do think we made the transition in what was six to eight weeks that would have otherwise taken you know five to 10 years. And I don't think we were alone in that. I think local authorities, I think other education institutions, schools, colleges, similarly went on a mass well not all of them did as you said about your kind of your kids experience i think there were obviously like always there was a there was a spectrum but i think that certainly the the top decile as it were uh, went with it and i think they've they've experienced a change and a transition that was a beneficial i think for learners and secondly rapid and and uh, yeah and it, i think it does demonstrate that when necessary and again it's back to my thing it proved my optimism about the sector because i think the people that feel you can't do things well it's not like that henry ford quote if you go into think any situation thinking either that you will succeed or that you won't succeed you're right that's what he said and i think he's absolutely right you know half of it is going in with the kind of belief that you will succeed at whatever the endeavor is and I'm not saying that's sufficient to mean that you will do it, but if you don't believe you're going to succeed, if you don't have that belief, you won't succeed. So I'm not suggesting that just, I'm not, I'm not again, a Pollyanna, I'm not a loon. I don't think, you know, you do have to make it work. You have to get the resources and make it work. But if you don't believe it will succeed, if you don't fundamentally believe that, it, it won't. And I think that the pandemic forced a lot of people to kind of, grapple with that issue that difficulty that technical challenge and as you say i think the industry will now be transformed because education won't go back to being delivered in the way that it was before the pandemic we, we won't ever go back to that and i don't think other providers will because it would be mad the advantages of the technology are too good i think it's blowing open the labour market within further education, just the shift to remote and hybrid working. It gives um, organisations access to a broader talent pool. And there's been some elasticity in that as, as everyone's returned to the workplace. 
But I'd say on the whole, you know, especially your training provider side of things, um, they are more um, receptive to remote working and, you know, they, they perhaps like a sprinkling of hybrid in there. But um, in the main, I find that, you know, they, they'll hire people irrespective of their geographical location. Colleges, you know, slightly different because they're geographically incumbent and, and similar to, to councils in that respect. They may still like to hire people who can commute. Um, but in general, you know, I think candidates and employers have more choice. I was just going to ask you, Ian, what Alex is saying there, you employing because you've gone to this kind of 75% in-house provision now. Um, are there within that 75%, and I know you're running a hybrid model, but are there certain employees that are, um, or, or trainers that are only working remotely? Yes, there are. And we, we have, have, and that's a thing, again, that's happened since the pandemic that wouldn't have been the case prior to the pandemic. But for some of our courses, because we're, we're offering some level three courses in things like coding and in kind of, you know, UI, UX and so on. And those specialist tutors, because again, it's from um, the kind of the, the IT side where it's not easy to attract tutors because they can frankly earn a lot more money working in the industry. So we can't really compete with pay. So one of the ways that we try to secure their input is by effectively allowing them to kind of work with us in a kind of more of a portfolio manner. And we know that they're therefore giving us their time squeezed around other work commitments that they have with other organizations. But I'd much rather have their talent supporting my learners when I can get it. And yeah, some of those are, yeah, they're living in, you know, One's in Manchester, there's some in London. So I've got a few now, not many, but about half a dozen tutors, mainly in that IT side, who are, who've got the expertise that I need. Um, and then I'm using their time when I can get it, basically. And I'm building my programs around their availability, which, you know, again, some people might say is wrong, but I'm, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm eminently pragmatic and I'm working with what I've got, because I wouldn't be able to hire in a traditional way those people with those skill sets and expect them to come and work for Inspire and be based in Nottinghamshire. That's just not likely to happen. So I think we've got to be, as a sector again, we've got to understand where our potential talent lies and try to be more flexible about ensuring that we can work with that talent in a way that allows that talent to give to, to, to contribute to us because if we expect the kind of them to kind of change their their current life and how they operate they're not going to do that and we can't frankly pay them the kind of money necessary that might induce them to do that and we're never going to be able to do that so we've got to think of other ways in which we can motivate them and and actually again it's back to what we were saying about what we make what difference we make to our learners again that's one of our biggest sale points it's not about the salary it's about the fact that by giving that time they know that they're making a massive contribution to either the young person or adults lives and quite a lot of people are very motivated to do that mm. because they they want to do something that's very worthwhile and they want to share their expertise in say high tech and coding and so on with others so that they can um basically you know they want to put a ladder down from where they are to help other people to climb up to that point. And I'm mean, not saying that's everybody, but I've found that there's at least a few people out there that want to do that and are prepared to, you know, as long as, as I say, we do it in a very flexible way that, that they can, that, so that we make it easy for them to contribute and support us. But yes, we've changed our approach to 
recruitment. I mean that that pragmatism is is an example of you know the the flexibility needed alongside location. It's it's the flexibility to work around people's other commitments and and how they want to work. And you see that with the growth of job boards like flex jobs and flexer careers. You know people are now expecting that from from employers. Uh, but it's it, you know it's interesting hearing you think about having that can do attitude, that optimism as being a key component of, of your own success. Looking forwards, what do you now see as the opportunities? Again, it's exciting times. The two main ones for me at the moment are, well, no, there's three. <laughs> there's, there's Multiply, which is, which is the new initiative that has, is around supporting adults who don't have basic maths. Um, and it's a new initiative. It started at the beginning of the financial year. It runs until the end of the financial year, 24-25. So it's a three-year um, funded programme. It's national. Um, it's, it's across not just England, it's Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. So it's truly UK-wide. Um, and Nottinghamshire has been given an allocation by the government. It's about £4.25 million we as the main provider are going to probably deliver about three million of those but we're going to work with west knots college and with futures the careers provider to help deliver it massively exciting uh, again I'm, I'm back to kind of building the plane as i'm flying it in terms of having to create a department of people to deliver the multiply so that's exciting so that's that's fantastic Second thing is that Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire, Derby and Nottingham, D2N2, has been picked as one of the, along with North Yorkshire and York, as one of the new um, mayoral combined authorities. So uh, that will mean that from the academic year 25-26, the funding for adult education will be devolved from the Education Skills Funding Agency to the new mayoral combined authority. And that's a massive both, I mean, there's a potential, it's a kind of opportunity and potentially threat because they could decide not to fund us anymore. But I, again, that's back to my optimism, ambition approach is that I'm not, I'm not ignoring that because that is there they could they will have an autonomy to decide what they do with the funding so it could mean that we could lose out in fact however i don't think that's likely to be the case and again those two things aren't um they aren't apart i i see in my head that multiply and the move to the devolved is inextricably linked because as i say the devolved um, change will happen. The transition will start from the academic year 25, 26. So from the 1st of August, 2025, it will kick in. The current multiply project finishes on the 31st of March, 2025. So effectively, if we can demonstrate, which I, I know we can, that we can deliver multiply really effectively and make a huge difference to the um, comfort and capability that adults in Nottinghamshire have with number and really make show that we've delivered that really effectively, then why would the new um, mayoral combined authority not want to support success? So I think they would. So I personally think it's a massive opportunity. Mm. And then the third one is that we have, as I said, been very successful at increasing our adult education budget um, funded adult accredited delivery where we, when i first took over there was no accredited it was entirely the community and family learning the non-accredited that we did as a service and we did that through the subcontractors 
Now we do that, but we also do over a million pounds worth of accredited. And I think that's huge and it's growing. And again, that will continue to grow. I'm optimistic that we can continue to grow that up to the point when it will then be devolved. And why, again, would the mayoral combined authority not want to continue to support us as a devolved and in the new devolved kind of mechanism arena when we've demonstrated how effective and how good value for money we are and what fantastic outcomes and achievements the learners who come with us achieve so that's that's my they're my three kind of big areas that i'm so you're going to be busy then oh absolutely yeah no it's it's not it's not no time to kind of twiddle my thumbs but it's but it's exciting it really is i'm very excited about that so a lot of our listeners are employer side L&D practitioners and obviously you're working with a council funded service how do they best work with their councils in your opinion and access the services and range of provision that that you offer that's a good question alex i think that quite often the employers are not aware of the range of services that they can get from their local authority in terms of you know further education support for um, either new employees wanting to kind of come into their to their business because we obviously have a source of both young people and adults who are recently qualified who if they've got a skill gap and they need to fill it we will probably have young people and adults that can help with that and similarly though we can offer support for their existing employees so we can actually train and uh, improve the skills and because if we've got as i say i've got that palette of funding i can actually do kind of bespoke uh, it doesn't have to be accredited it doesn't have to be at particular times it doesn't have to be face to face it can be flexibly delivered and i don't think that employers are necessarily aware of that one of the things i'm doing because again with multiply and others i've used you know the funding to create what is basically a pool of learning engagement officers and those learning engagement officers are going to go out not just to talk to the communities uh, but they're going to go out and talk to employers so my um, ambition and i'm going to do it is to uh, improve and enhance how many communications and conversations we have with the local employers across our county and um, you know we're going to tell them and explain to them in ways that they can find it easy to engage what we can offer because i don't think they know what that is we can't really afford to do a massive marketing campaign and frankly i think what's more effective than that is the kind of conversation that you can have and what we need to do is tell our learning engagement officers that what they need to do is understand our our product offer which is quite complicated but understand it well enough so that when they're having a conversation with an employer they can ask him or her what their business needs and requirements are and what are the issues that they currently are facing and then with a little bit of thinking it's not difficult to come up with how we can be a very effective part of the solution that can really help them and that's our role because we are doing that on behalf of nottinghamshire county council the county council's strategic support is all around making the um, business environment for the county as strong as possible to improve obviously levels of um, employment but also just to improve the general prosperity of Nottinghamshire as a county and what better way to do that than to support our 
small and medium sized and larger employers across that county to be as effective as possible. And we know at the moment there's a real issue around skill shortages, both in terms of recruitment and in terms of existing employees, not necessarily having the right skills that you need and the employer needs. And lots of employers don't have the money to frankly do that investment. And we've got quite a lot of that money because we've been successful in securing it. So we need to just show them that we can really help and we need to do that by having those conversations i don't think there's an easy way i think it's kind of shoe leather shoe leather and you know the equivalent and pound and, and using the technology as well but you know getting out there and communicating face to face with them i think we can make a real difference and have a big impact it's inspirational hearing you talk about you know the success that you've had and, and actually dealing with lots of train providers and seeing a lot of their marketing materials i think it's so often absent people talking about the actual progression and the reason people do training. They talk about, you know, do the training or selling our yeah. course and they really focus on actually what, what is that life outcome for someone? So it's just totally refreshing to hear someone in your position talk about that. Well, maybe it's a marketing thing, but it is, isn't it? It's about don't sell, don't sell the banger, sell the sizzle kind of thing. And it really is. You need, you know, you need to sell, it needs to be exciting and it needs to be why would you bother to engage and what are you going to get out of it and what are the kind of you know real not just features and benefits but because that could be a bit dull but what actually is the transformation the transformational impact that learning can have because it really does and that's what again that's why i get up in the morning and do it because it's exciting to be involved in something that's almost like alchemy and you take people and they they themselves change into something that's so much better than they thought they could be and that is massive to me and that's what that's the opportunity so i feel i'm privileged to have that opportunity to work in the sector that can do that because that's amazing so our fourth guest so far and hopefully you agree with us in that that was another great interview different perspective to the last three shows we put out um, thoroughly enjoyable and I've got a lot of time for him he's someone I could talk to all day Alex yeah definitely and I think it shows how well rounded you have to be to work in further education and uh, it was great to hear from Ian about his his work that he's done with businesses you know linking pots of available funding uh, for his kind of school of entrepreneurship and for the kind of incubator idea just thought it was really fascinating because sometimes you know, it's just worth looking externally to what, what else is out there. Yeah, I mean, that you mentioned it there, the kind of well-rounded. He's got like this kind of 360 view on everything, hasn't he? He's been involved in the kind of partnership side and marketing as well as uh, driving numbers of, of, of apprenticeships and things like that. So I think he's got everything um, in, in his locker. And, and most importantly, I guess my biggest um, takeout was what I mentioned at the top of the show is passion. I, I just got a lot of time for people that, are passionate about stuff, you know, and, and use that kind of drive and determination to really change things and, and have an impact. And I think Ian's someone who's probably had an impact on a number of people's lives. And we just need more Ian's at local authorities in the UK, I reckon. Oh, definitely. I mean, his work with, with the NEAT uh, is inspiring. And, and there's lots to take from, from this about, you know, aligning motivations to promote learner engagement. Mm. And I think that carries through into L&D, you know, on the corporate side as well. Yeah, we started in that world of, of NEETs, uh, working in the Northeast, and we met some youngsters, really had a tough time, you know, and, and I've got to say, to this day, I think that's the most rewarding stuff we worked on. 
So that's it for this week's show. Thanks to Ian for his time and, and sharing what I hope you'll agree with some great insights. Uh, and just a quick reminder to please, you know, subscribe and share, like and comment uh, wherever you're listening. And uh, we'll be back again in, in a couple of weeks.